Well, good morning. <clears throat> we are uh, still in Mark, and so if you grab a Bible in front of you, uh, we're going to be there this morning. We are going to finish in Mark after a long journey over a year around Easter. So uh, Mark 14 is where we are. I know there's, uh, there's several children that usually come up on Sunday morning and get to talk to you that usually ask for a, a, day, uh, a word of the, the day. Their parents encourage them to look for a word in the sermon. And they give like a quarter or a dollar or something like that. So if your children do that, um, the word is waste. Okay. Um, and I was actually thinking this morning, kind of cutting a little deal, going 50-50 with them. Get up here and use it like 30 times right in a row and just, you know, taking half the proceeds. No, I wasn't doing that. <laughs> um, so we're in, uh, we're in Mark 14. Let me give you a little context. Um, we're two or three days from Jesus being on a cross. Thousands, around 100 or 200,000 have journeyed into Jerusalem. So it is busy. And Jesus and his disciples have gathered about a mile and a half in, outside of Jerusalem in Bethany at a house of a friend, Simon the leper. That's where we are in Mark 14. If you follow along with me as I read. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who is one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray once more. Merciful Father, you are so gracious. Therefore, we are asking on behalf of your mercy that you would allow this not to just be some average day in our lives. That as we read what we know to be your inspired word, our hearts and our eyes would be opened and the Holy Spirit would direct eternal truths into our lives. That we would leave here changed ready to live for you, ready to spend time with you, and captivated by the gospel of your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Many of you know the story of five uh, men who went to Ecuador in the 1950s. They went to tell a very isolated and uh, very dangerous, hostile tribe called the Harani about Jesus. 
they um, they had a little plane that they established contact with these Indians, the Harani. It had never been reached by the outside world, and they started circling around the tribe and lowering down this a bucket full of gifts, and they uh, started exchanging gifts with these Indians. They were encouraged by that, so... Um, uh, they landed one day on January 3rd, 1956, about four miles on a beachhead outside of this tribe. The encounter was encouraging as well. They found that they weren't as dangerous as they thought they were. Um, so they uh, decided they'd come back about a few days later, and all five of them got on this plane and landed at the same place, and they were met this time by a group of armed men with spears. And all five were then speared to death and killed uh, there at their plane. In the eyes of much of the world, what a waste, right? These men had families and wives and children they left behind. And, and really, what did they accomplish? On the surface, it seems that this woman in our text today has done the exact same thing. She enters into the middle of a room with men and breaks a very expensive jar of perfume worth almost a year's worth of wages to anoint Jesus. And the ones proclaim her before her in verse 4, what a waste. Yet this woman in our text sees something about Jesus that the others don't see. And Jesus, it seems that she has gained something of supreme value that has loosened her grip on other things in her life. Where they see waste, she only sees gain. And those five men and their wives seem to have seen the same thing that others didn't see. They saw Jesus as a supreme value, a far greater gain than a comfortable house, a family that's safe and sound and growing up maybe back in America where your grandparents can know their grandchildren. As Jim Elliott, one of the ones who died famously said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. The Apostle Paul wrote something just like this in Philippians, his letter to Christians in Philippi. He said, whatever things were gained to me, I actually considered loss. I've counted as loss compared to the surpassing greatness or value, surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He found Christ as a surpassing value. And we don't use that term as much anymore. It's not like I go to the grocery store and come home and be like, Miriam, you're not going to believe this. Mayo was buy one, get two free. Have you ever seen a surpassing value like like that? We don't, we don't say that. But you might consider it if you're walking along in New York City in the streets or something and you look down and you see something shining and you you pick up a, a giant a diamond. You go to get it assessed and it's actually worth thousands and thousands of dollars. You might write to a friend, I found something of surpassing value. As the world looked at Paul's life and the things he gave up, they only saw loss. They saw a waste. What a waste of a life. But Paul had found a diamond. In Jesus, he had found a surpassing value. The truth is, is when we find Jesus, it changes us as well. Christianity changes us. This woman is a picture of what should happen to us all the more as we come to see Jesus as our surpassing value. 
as he really is. And so let's look at three things that we will do or that will happen to us as we come to see Jesus as he really is from this woman's life. If you could put that slide up there. Um, we'll come to spend time with Jesus. We'll find security in Jesus. And find our significance from Jesus. So three things. Spend time with Jesus, find security and significance from Jesus. So let's look first at spending time with Jesus. You might remember uh, Pastor Matt earlier in the, in the series of Mark talking about um, what Mark does sometimes in a text. He calls it the Markian sandwich. I think that's what Matt used. I don't think it's a theological term. I hadn't found it in any of the early church fathers or anything. Um, when Mark mentions two similar things, and then he emphasizes, he wants to emphasize something uh, in the middle of it. So it's kind of like two pieces of bread with the meat in the middle. Uh, so one, verses 1 through 2 in, in the beginning of this passage shows the religious leaders of this time, they almost treat Jesus as like a bug to squash, to get out of their way, right? I mean, he's a threat to their power and prestige, and they're seeking to secretly slip in and kill this annoyance. Skip down to the end, you see Judas basically doing the same thing. He thought so little of Jesus, he's ready to just just give him up for a few pieces of silver. But in the middle of these two pieces of bread, Mark zooms in on a woman. And from John's gospel, we know this woman is probably Mary, the sister of, of Martha and Lazarus. But Mark doesn't mention her name. Probably because he, he's not as worried about who it was and more about what he did, her affection for Jesus. She seems to enter this room with her eyes fixed on Jesus, almost like a woman would fix her eyes upon a diamond ring just after her fiancé has knelt down. As she gazes upon the ring and then turns her eyes and gazes upon the fiancé, fully aware of what's happening in her life, this is how this woman is staring at Jesus. Nothing is more valuable to her, it seems, than to him in this moment. We know this because we see her pour out her most valuable possession onto his head. We're going to talk about this uh, gift more in the next point, but what we need to see here is that how everybody else misses what's going on. In verse 4, you can see, they say, Ah, what a waste! This should have been sold and given to the poor. And by Matthew's account, we actually read some of the disciples, followers of Jesus, that said this. The point is this, that we can see. While many had their eyes set on what they could do for Jesus, this woman was overflowing with a love for a person. And she had her eyes on being with him. This woman had fallen in love with a person to live with, not simply a project to live for. There's an older woman in my former church. Um, she was from England. A delightful, she had the most delightful Scottish accent. <laughs> Not Scottish, English. I can't, Australia, anyway. She, uh, she became a Christian. She met an American guy from uh, in, uh, near the war, and she came back to America uh, with him and became a Christian. And she became zealous as a Christian. She She did, she was full of good works, and she, um, she started Bible studies all around, and she went into the prisons and evangelized. Um, she had a very fruitful ministry in her life. I, um, 
I love to spend time with her. And one day I was with her and I, I said, Miss Wendy, I'd love to know what you're learning about Jesus these days. And she, um, she looked at me and said, you know, I, I, I'm learning that I've spent my whole life doing for Jesus. I'm just now learning in my 80s what it means to be with him. I wish I had learned that earlier. You know, I think it's a great warning for us, those of us who highly value being productive all the time. There's many of us here that, that are in that situation. Those of us who get really stressed when we feel like we haven't had the most efficient, productive day. Those of us who drift towards, in our relationship with God, spending more time doing things for, for Jesus than spending time getting to know him. Klaus Isler wrote a book called Wasting Time with God. In it, he said, when it comes to developing a deep, trusting relationship with God, efficiency and productivity are not the answer. It's far better to waste time with him, to just enjoy being with him. After all, that's how any friendship grows. But making room for God in the midst of our fast-paced lives is not an easy task. Just as time with our best friends can get squeezed out by the rush of activities, so can our time with God. You know, in 1967, testimony was given to a Senate subcommittee um, on time management. And it was projected that uh, because of the increasing technology, such as computers and satellites and robotics, that workers would be so efficient that the GDP would swell and the work week would just uh, shrink. It was estimated in a study that by 1985, Americans would be working only 22 hours a week for 27 weeks of the year and retire at age 38. Is there anybody in that category? <laughs> no. Almost 50 years later, right? We're as, we're as busy as ever. Many of us, because of that, find it really hard to find room for our Creator in the midst of that fast-paced life. One pastor and author rightly warned that the danger for most of us as Christians today is not that we will renounce our faith one day. It's, It's that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we'll settle for a mediocre version of it. Oh, how we are tempted, are we not, to settle for mediocrity in our relationship with the most important person in the universe. We just don't waste much time with him. We just don't see he is our surpassing value compared to other distractions. And I've been convicted as I've begun a new year and studied this passage of how little time I really waste for Jesus. I find it's, you know, I, I can check off my boxes in the morning with my reading plan but how easy it is to skip on to other things before really attempting to spend time with Jesus, meditating on the text and finding him in it and enjoying him through it. We can learn a lot from this woman here. Life is first about enjoyment of a person. Not simply doing, being good and doing good things. Most religions do that. They present a God and give you a list of things to wake up in the morning and go do for him in order to gain his approval, right? Go do this to please God, but this is not Christianity. 
you already have God's approval. You have already gained his pleasure. You already have his love based on what Christ has done, and therefore that causes you to want to draw near and enjoy him. And it's from that fertile soil of God's grace that causes us to start having a passion, an overflowing reactionary zeal to serve God and sacrificially give for others, right? I encourage you to lead yourself and your family into spending more time with Jesus. You might even write down some things in your bulletin to take home. What are those things that keep you distracted and preoccupied, those lesser distractions that keep your mornings from doing that or your evenings? And no doubt these are many good things. But as we waste more precious moments with with Jesus reading and meditating on the Bible, as we waste a, a day in worship like this, hearing his word preached and enjoying worship, we will come to see more and more the surpassing value of who Jesus is. Spending time with Jesus. The second thing we'll do more and more as we see him is to find our security in Jesus. We'll find our security in him. It's, it's, it's hard to overestimate the shock of what this woman does. Verse 3 says that Mary brings something called pure nard. It says that it's very costly. In other words, she didn't run out to Target and say, okay, I got to get a little oil here, go to the, you know, the, the, oil, the perfume section, get it in 1999, um, come back and you know, dab his head. It says that this pure nard was worth 300 denarii. Denarii was worth one day's wage. So this was almost a full year's way of wages for her. It would have been close to twenty-five to thirty thousand dollars. We don't know for sure, um, but we can make an assumption, some assumptions, why she, this woman, would would have such a jar worth so much money. Um, if it really is Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, we assume that she's unmarried, and that probably her father had already died at this point. So what this was was actually. Probably an inheritance passed on to her from her father. In other words, it was her savings account. It was her retirement fund. Such a fund was a source of security, especially to an unmarried woman at that time. It was extremely important to keep this safe. You remember the story of... uh, in Luke 15, where the, a woman has 15, or I'm sorry, 10 coins, and she loses one, she just loses one coin. What does she do? She tears her whole house apart in order to find that coin. This coin was so valuable, so needed for her future security, that she tears everything apart trying to find it. And then when she finds it, she throws a party with her friends because she's so excited. She found this one silver coin. These coins were their security in life. And when Mary brought in this jar, all probably thought that she's going to break the seal of this expensive perfume that was her inheritance and take a little on her finger and dab it on Jesus and anoint him with oil, which would have been a pretty great sacrifice in and of itself to go ahead and break this thing open. But she didn't do that, did she? Verse 3 says that she came in and she broke the alabaster jar. 
and poured it out over his head. She broke it all. She was all in. There was no going back. There was no restoring it at that point. It was done. It would have been one of those moments where people's mouths dropped open. Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa don't, no, no, don't do that. Oh, oh, man. Oh, man. What were you thinking? What a waste of money. How did she do this? How could one give up such a source of security? The only answer that I can think of is that she must have found in Jesus such a greater security than in that savings account. And you think about what she had seen. She'd seen this person of Jesus that she'd been with open the eyes of the blind, heal and restore the sick back to life. She, she had just recently, probably a few days or weeks before this, seen her brother pass away and die and be put in a tomb for three days. Jesus, why weren't you here? You could have done something. He sees, she sees him walk up to the tomb and just speak a word, almost like he's calling a, a child to come out of his room into the kitchen. Lazarus, come forth. And this man who was dead came out of the tomb and walked. She saw, she knew that if Jesus is with me and is for me, that's enough. It's more security, infinitely more security than this perfume. And I think many of us live with so many insecurities, don't we? We live in a culture that encourages encourages us to check our bank account, our retirement fund, balance, in order to to really rest secure. We we stay worried about our financial situation. We stay worried about our health. If we have our medical uh, situation lined up, to really feel secure in this life. We're tempted to take all these things and hold tight to them. We're tempted to hold on to what ultimately we cannot keep. Elizabeth Elliot is one of the li- uh, wives of those uh, of the women who lost their husbands that day on the beach. and She later wrote a book called Passion and Purity, learning how to l- bring your love life under Christ's control. And in it she said, if we hold tightly to anything given to us, unwilling to allow it to be used as the giver means it to be used, if we stunt the growth, it will stunt the growth of the soul. What God gives us is not necessarily ours, but only ours to offer back to Him. Ours to relinquish. Ours to lose. Ours to let go of. If we want to be our true selves. Many deaths must go into reaching our maturity in Christ. Many letting goes. And it is a good quote if it's made by anybody, right? But it has a special Significance coming from one who had to give up and relinquish her own husband as a very young mother. Put yourself in her shoes. She's saying that if we put our security ultimately in anything else other than God and we hold on tight and we're unable to give it up, even our spouse or our family, then we're stunning the growth of our soul. But notice she doesn't see this as ultimately loss relinquishing such things. The letting go is actually a gain. It seems it is the means of actually gaining what she says is our true selves. It's the beginning 
of being able to actually love our spouse and children as you relinquish them to God and don't seek your security in them. It's the beginning of being able to actually have money and, and, and it not control you. To try to find your, significant, your security in what you have. It's exactly what Jesus said. If you want to try to save your life, you want to hold on tight to those things, anything, you're going to lose it in that area. You're going to lose yourself. But if you will lose your life for me, if you relinquish control, then you're actually going to find it. You're going to find your fullness of life. And this is actually what Jesus is in the middle of doing, right? In the middle of losing and giving up his life. Mary doesn't even see the full picture, but she's anointing him like one, she thinks almost like one would do a priest or a king to show him honor. But Jesus says, let me show you what's actually going on. You're actually anointing me for my burial. See, in those times, the dead were anointed um, with, with oil before they would be buried in the tomb to show honor but not criminals. Criminals did not deserve such honor. They would be killed and buried without it. And worse, worse than that, Jesus knew that he was not just going to a tree treated as a criminal, but he was going as actually being rejected by his own father, right? As he took our sins upon him, himself, giving his life. He knew that he was being rejected and treating worse than a criminal. He's being treated as a sin, sinful us before a holy God. And while many, many were seeking to take Jesus' life, what we see here, because of the, he was a threat to their security, Jesus was trying and attempting and doing, he was giving up his life. Jesus' birth, even from the beginning, was like a broken flask, wasn't it? There wasn't, there wasn't going back. It was straight, he was headed straight to the cross to give up everything. And just like she poured this oil out on Jesus, verse 24 later, Jesus says, in the Lord's Supper, he said, my blood will be poured out for many. Why did he do this? Seems that we were the object of his affection. For God so loved the world, he had his eyes so fixed on you and I that he gave his only son. And this is what this woman saw, though imperfectly, imperfectly. This is what we see so clearly now, and we're encouraged to believe it. And it leads us to want to look at our lives. What in our lives are we holding on to that needs to be broken at the foot of the cross because of this? What are you holding on to as a source of security? What keeps you up anxious at night that you think if you lose this, then your life is just going to fall apart? Jesus gave up his life that he may guarantee that he will be enough for you in whatever area that is. And the more we get this, the more we will find our soul set free to really enjoy him and enjoy those people and things around us. So secondly, we see, as we see Jesus as he is, we find our security in him. Lastly, we find our significance. The more we see Jesus as our surpassing value, we find our significance from Jesus. It's hard for us to understand how crazy this really was, as we said. We probably would have thought that this woman lost it as well. Even before she poured out $30,000 onto the head of Jesus, she was breaking all the social norms. See, at that time, women didn't come in and eat and fellowship with the men. They stayed separated at a dinner party like this. So it's like, basically, she's walking into 
a men's night breaking in and all the eyes would have just kind of stepped back and said, what's going on? I, we were talking about this text with the staff um, earlier in the week and Linda Wheatley was in there and so I asked her, I said, can you just give me from a woman's perspective, you know, what's, what's going on in your eyes? And she said, I think I would have been uh, way too embarrassed to do anything like that. Uh, to have everybody staring at me in the middle of a room, I, I just don't even think I could have even walked in the room, much less the ointment, right? And I was like, that got me thinking. I was like, me too. <laughs> so true, me too. I, I lived my childhood as what I would call an approval suck. I was so thirsty to find my significance in what other people thought of me. And when I became a Christian in college, it really didn't change very much. I just found that I could actually get my significance from being a good person and living my Christian life out, doing a lot for Jesus. I actually found that I could get a lot of significance from that. And it's remained even till today. But even if I would have had such security in Christ to sacrifice the ointment, this, this means I still probably, I probably would have actually, instead of walking to the room like that, I probably would have peeked around the corner and be like, Psst, Jesus, come over here, you know. Come over, you know, I got some oil. <laughs> okay, go, you can go back. <laughs> that, that's why there's something here so attractive about this woman, what this woman does, right? I mean, her significance is not in what others think of her. It, it seems like she, she has an attractive shamelessness, doesn't she? Her significance isn't from that, from what people think of her. Her significance isn't from the fact that she has such an expensive ointment. I mean, she could have gone out and, right, and bought the latest model camel and drove it around town. Hey, check it out. You know, I mean, that money could have been used a lot of different ways. We see an attractive freedom from the love of money, an attractive freedom from the, the love and need of approval of others. Her eyes were on Jesus. You ever been hit in the head with something, or falling on the floor, and kind of everything goes a little dark? Or actually, the, the noise around you kind of goes it's like this buzzing that's almost like what's happened to her. It's like the outside noises have grown, grown dim. And all she can focus on is this person before her. It's as if she's turned her eyes upon Jesus. She's looking full into his wonderful face. And the things of this earth have grown strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Verse 5 says they actually began to scold her. It means that they actually began to uh, rebuke her with anger. And right there in front of Jesus. Thinking almost Jesus would at any time come in and be like, yeah, probably wasn't the best idea. The money could have been used for our homeless ministry down the road. But Jesus didn't say that, did he? He says, leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing. It's another situation where their, their, their mouths probably dropped open. And they're like, oh, I just can't figure this guy out. It's about as unpredictable as can be. But what Jesus is saying here is actually r- profound if you really think about it. And I encourage you just to stop for a moment and, and think about this. Firstly, no other religious leader would have done something like this. This is, this is not what religious people do. Religious leaders would have done something like this. Yeah, you're right. Don't pour it on me. Don't use it on me. Because who am I? Let's just, let's, let's honor the poor. 
But what Jesus does is he's saying, yeah, pour it on me. Because that $30,000 of ointment is nothing of worth and value compared to who I am. See, he's, he's saying in this moment, I am a rightful, worthy sacrifice of your sacrifice. I'm a worthy object of your affection. I am of surpassing value. There's nothing you could pour out that's of more value. And it would be scandalous to receive such an offering like that unless he truly was of the Godhead. But secondly, we see Jesus is saying something profound for, about everything that we sacrifice and give up in this life for Jesus' sake. Where the world and even us, as we think about some of the areas we've done that and we've lost, we think it might have been a waste, we see Jesus saying, that's beautiful. All the time spent alone with God when nobody saw you. Time in prayer. You're in a closet. Nobody sees you. You think, man, was it worth it? The sacrifice of hundreds of unnoticed times of selfless giving at your home or fi- not fighting back maybe when you had the opportunity to, opportunity to do that. Maybe forgiving someone who didn't deserve it or sacrificing financially when you don't know where the money's going to come from. You ever tempted to say, man, was that worth it? Was that a waste? If so, if you hear that in your own mind or if you hear the world tempting you to believe that, would you hear even now that Jesus says, beautiful, that's beautiful. And not only that, but her seemingly wasted offering, her beautiful offering in verse 9, it says, Jesus says, this offering will actually be remembered until all eternity. Whenever the gospel is preached, what, what this woman has done will be remembered. Now, I don't know about you, but if there's, there's never once been a time when I've shared the gospel and finished with, and oh yeah, um, there's this woman who poured oil onto Jesus' head, right? It's kind of a little confusing what Jesus is saying, but in summary, I really think what he's saying is that not only will our big and small sacrifices in Jesus' name be, uh, be noticed and considered beautiful by our Savior, but one day in eternity, it is going to be remembered, everyone. Our Creator God is going to stand before us and say, that was awesome, and it is not forgotten, and it will be remembered. This is awesome. And if you look at the big picture, you see the big theme. You see at the end of the story, Judas. He's, he's given up the surpassing value for Jesus' life to be killed just for a few pieces of silver. And what happens at the end of his life? You see him having lost everything. Hanging on a, cross, or on a tree, filled with his own guilt and shame, he took his own life. At the end, But with this woman, we see her seemingly wasting her oil, but spending time and enjoying the presence of one who hung on a tree to remove her guilt and her shame and demonstrated God's great love for her. And we don't know what happened to her, but it sure seems that she's gained it all, doesn't it? Absolute security in Christ, absolute significance from him, and truly he is no fool. And she is no fool who gives up what they cannot keep to gain what they will never lose. In the eyes of the world, those five men who gave up their lives were fools. 
They give up their families, a long life is a complete waste, it seemed. Elizabeth Elliot, again, the wife of one of the five, later wrote, To the world at large, this was a sad waste of five young lives, but God has his plan and purpose in all things. And there were those whose lives were changed by what happened on that beach. And then she goes on to tell the story, story after story of lives that had been changed by those five men giving their lives. Indians, a group of Indians in Brazil, hearing the story and crying out to God for forgiveness because they recognized they were like those Indians. An American naval officer, having read the story before his accident, trusted Christ while stranded at sea. An 18-year-old boy in Iowa, having heard the story, goes to his room and starts praying for seven days and goes to his parents afterwards and says, I'm turning my life over completely to the Lord. I want to try to take the place of one of those who lost theirs. This is not to mention that she, Elizabeth, and some of the other mothers and wives actually stayed to love those Indians and saw many of them come to know Jesus and their whole eternity flipped upside down after their husbands were relinquished. In fact, Steve Saint, the son of Nate Saint, was actually baptized by the Indian who killed his father. Let us leave here today with a resolve to see the surpassing value of Jesus. Be encouraged to spend time knowing him, to find your security and significance from him in all of life. And if we see him like this, we will believe and live out what we are about to sing in our last song. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were, that were an offering far too small, Love so amazing, love so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Let's pray. Oh, precious God who has loved us before we have done anything good for you. Forgive us even now for our lack of treasuring you as our surpassing value, and especially the work of Christ who made a way for us to have that relationship into all eternity. But we state even now we believe he earned our approval. He earned your love. And there's nothing more important in life in life than knowing him and then laying down our lives and all we have for his sake. Would you enable us by your grace to go from here and do that very thing? In Jesus' name, amen.